Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, greetings, everyone. I want to welcome those who are watching from different venues here at Central Campus. Special greetings to those who are tuning in from our Bridgeland Regional. And I also want to welcome our online audience as well. Last weekend, I spoke to you on the theme, Hope in Troubled Times. I believe that the Lord laid that theme in my heart for a reason. And I know that God has a message for you today. So if you're going through a difficult time in your life, take heart, because God wants to speak to us this morning. I'm going to pick up on the same place where I left last weekend and take you deeper in our understanding of hope. For hope is the biggest need of the hour. Our world today faces a whole range of problems for which we have few solutions. Terrorism, economic meltdown, natural disasters, persecution of Christians, the list just goes on. While we are upset when we hear about the problems of our world, most of us don't get into panic attacks or depression because of global problems. We've gotten used to it, haven't we? Yet another terrorist attack, yet another earthquake in some part of the world, yet another shooting incident. What can we do about it? But it's the personal challenges of our life which throw us for a loop. Loss of job, health challenges, financial crisis, relationship struggles, loss of loved ones, children walking away from the faith. These kinds of challenges affect us deeply. When we face personal trials, our hope is under attack. Hope is called as the oxygen of the soul. Just as we cannot survive without oxygen, we cannot survive without hope either. So how do we deal with these troubling issues both in the world and in our own lives? And how do we maintain our hope in times of such uncertainties that are all around us? Last weekend, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, which gives us a majestic vision of the God who reigns. So it does not matter what problems we are going through in our lives. The Bible affirms the sovereignty of God. So it is the God who sits upon the throne whom we trust. And we anchor our lives on him. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Just as an anchor steadies the ship, in the same way, Jesus is the anchor who keeps us rooted in our faith. It was Corey Ten Boom who wrote, in order to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the stress of the storm. When the ship is sailing on smooth seas, you don't appreciate the value of the anchor. But it's when the sea is rough and the wind and waves are pounding that you marvel at the anchor's ability to keep the ship from going adrift. That's very true of our Christian lives as well. 
Sometimes the current is strong and the challenges of life hit us hard and they try to derail us. But in Christ, we have an anchor that is immovable even when we are battered by the storms of life. Today, I want us to look at the experience of one of the central characters in the New Testament, how he coped with his personal problems when his life went on a tailspin, totally out of control, and his faith in the midst of that crisis helps us when we endure our own personal struggles. The person I'm referring to is none other than the Apostle Paul. Would you stand now as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Shall we commit this time to the Lord in prayer? Lord, as we come to you today, we express our dependence on you and we need to hear from you today, Lord. We know your voice brings clarity to our lives. Your voice brings hope and peace. So we pray that we will be open to what you have to say to us, receptive to your words. Father, make these words come alive by the power of your spirit. That your word will be like fire and our hearts will be like grass. That you will light a flame in us that'll burn for you. So we commit this time from the beginning to the end into your hands. Lead us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. For we ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We have an obsession today with personality tests. Apparently, these tests give us insights into who we are, how we think, how we function in a team environment, and how we relate with others. I thought only God who created us knows all these intimate details of our lives, but these 10-minute tests claim they do as well. Someone called personality tests as psychological selfies, and that's probably true. You know, we have a range of tests available, from Myers-Briggs to Strength Finders to Disc Profile. And we got several wacky ones on the internet, like if you were a season, which season would you be? <laughs> uh, what nationality should you be according to the food you love? And my favorite one, if you were a medication, which one would you be? 
you know, I couldn't resist that one just out of curiosity, so I had to take the test. So you know what medication I am? An antidepressant. <laughs> I tell you, that's better than being an antacid or marijuana. Sure enough, our personalities have an influence on how we approach life and how we handle life's problems. A young man who was an extrovert was working at the produce department of a big store. He was approached by a customer who wanted to buy half a head of lettuce. The young man was annoyed, so he shook his head and he responded, I don't know, I'll have to check with the manager. So he was going to consult the manager, unaware that the customer was following him. So the young man says to the manager, some idiot wants half a head of lettuce. <laughs> and as soon as he said that, he turned back and to his horror, realized that the customer was standing right there. And the young man continues without missing a beat, and this gracious gentleman has consented to buy the other half. <laughs> we have all kinds of personalities, don't we? It sure makes this world a colorful place. How would you describe the Apostle Paul's personality? Would you agree he was a type A? If Paul were to do a disc profile, I'm pretty sure he will have a high D. The disc profile for D says Ds are dominant and demanding. They win at all costs. They do not care as much about what people think as they care about getting the job done. Their insensitivity to feelings makes them too strong. They are motivated by serious challenges to accomplish tasks. When you look at Paul's life, you can argue that he certainly demonstrated a lot of those characteristics, if not all. But when you read the book of 2 Corinthians, you see a different side to Paul, a softer side. You actually breathe a sigh of relief after reading 2 Corinthians, as we can conclude, Paul was human after all. What we see in this passage we read is a self-disclosure. You get a glimpse of Paul's inner struggles and the demands of the ministry as they got the better of him. All too often, we've been provided with the picture of these great saints of the Christian faith who never grew weary, who were seldom discouraged and disheartened. They were passionate all the time, and their faith in God was so strong. And you look at your own life and wonder, why does my graph have so many ups and downs? The great saints had their personal dark night of the soul experiences. Seasons in their life when God seemed to be absent and their spiritual life was in crisis. But those saints also learned that the dark night of the soul makes way for the dawn of a glorious morning. You have to go through the dark in order to appreciate the light. We see Paul as strong and passionate in his convictions. 
A man who had a personal vision of Jesus that forever changed the course of his life. He was called and commissioned by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This man who had determined in his heart to take the gospel to the ends of the world faced a time in his life when he hit the lowest low and everything came to a stumbling halt. Look at our passage in verse 8. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul is sharing with the Corinthian church about a season in his life when he hit rock bottom. We know that Paul went through unimaginable amount of suffering for the gospel. It was a tough calling. In fact, when God spoke to Ananias for the very first time about Paul, this is what God said in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That was Paul's ministry. There is no crown without a cross. Great callings come with a big price tag as well. You cannot separate the two. They go together. Paul was a man of strong willpower and extraordinary determination. But the experience that Paul is alluding to in our passage that happened in Asia was so excruciating that even Paul and his companions went into despair. It caused them mental anguish that cannot be described in words. But the problem we have is we are not entirely sure what experience Paul is referring to. We can only guess. Some say this happened during Paul's ministry time in Ephesus. It was in Ephesus when there was a confrontation between Paul and a lynch mob that wanted to take his life. It happened because people were getting saved and the guys who were making idols were running out of business. So they were furious and they wanted to create a controversy. Ephesus was a city that practiced voodoo And it was a center for witchcraft. So as Paul ministered in Ephesus, he was in the front lines of a major spiritual warfare. And if you have any experience in spiritual warfare, you know that as you serve in that front line, you're also going to be attacked. Is that what led to this physical and spiritual agony in Paul's life that couldn't be expressed in words? Quite possible. We don't know the exact set of circumstances, but all we know is it knocked the wind off his sails. Paul says we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. It weighed him down like a ton of bricks. When we see this phrase, it was far beyond our ability to endure, 
a word picture that comes close to describing this is an, an animal carrying a heavy load of weight buckling under the pressure. You know, in India, we don't use U-Haul trucks when we move. Most people still use horse carts to carry items when they move. So you can see a skinny horse pulling a heavy load of household items, fridge, washing machine, furniture, and all of that in 45 degrees sweltering heat. And you don't know when that poor animal is going to collapse under this heavy burden. That's what Paul was experiencing. The pressure was so intense that he was about to cave in. He was being crushed by the load. A passage is vivid and descriptive. Paul's situation was so bad that he despaired even of life. The word used for despair implies the total unavailability of any escape route. He felt so cornered by the problems that there was absolutely no way out. Have you ever experienced that moment in your life when you had exhausted all your options and you had no clue what your next move is going to be? Paul was in that place. The first part of verse 9 tells us, indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death. The language here signifies an official verdict. The prospect was so bleak and there was literally no hope of survival. As we read our passage, it appears what Paul was experiencing would be called in our modern terms as a nervous breakdown. A former chaplain of Princeton University once said, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. When he loses his hope, that's when he dies. Paul had lost all his hope. There was clearly no way out. And that led to a great mental distress. Have you ever battled with depression? The feeling of being so overwhelmed with sadness and grief that you cannot take another step. The surge of panic and anxiety that leaves you dysfunctional. When everything in your life looks so dark, so gloomy, that you cannot see a single ray of hope. When your hope gets snuffed out, all of a sudden there's little motivation to live. We don't talk about depression in the church. It's taboo. But depression is such a common problem in our society. The statistics are revealing and things are no different in the church. 20% of Canadians will personally experience a mental illness in their lifetime. And people under 20 years of age have the highest rate of depression symptoms. And somehow we have fallen into this notion 
that a Christian will never face depression. And let me tell you, that's not true. Some of the great saints of the past suffered from chronic depression. Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, William Carey, C.S. Lewis, A.B. Simpson, Mother Teresa. And as you open your Bibles, you see the psalmist, Job, prophet Elijah, and even the apostle Paul, all battled with depression. Do you know when you have hit the lowest point in your life? The lowest point in life, the rock bottom, is not your diagnosis of cancer. Not the loss of loved one, or broken dreams, or broken relationships. It's not your divorce. It's not your financial crisis. You know you have hit the lowest point in life. If a voice from inside says, there is no hope, you cannot carry on anymore, resign and quit. It's a sentence of death that we give to ourselves. And it's one thing when those voices come from outside, but it's very different when those voices scream from within and say, you have no hope, you better give up and die. That's the lowest point of life. And some people act on those thoughts and take their life. Suicide accounts for 24% of all deaths among Canadians aged 15 to 24. And 16% of all deaths for the age group 25 to 44. And there are countless others whose hearts may be beating, but they are dead on the inside. For they have lost that motivation to live. Is there any hope for such people? The book of Psalms is not just a manual of praise. Over one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. And in one of those Psalms of lament in Psalm 42, we find the psalmist is questioning, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. What we see in this psalm is the psalmist is being drowned by feelings of discouragement and despair and hopelessness. He's in, in a great amount of depression. A similar situation like the Apostle Paul's, where there was no way out. But notice, the psalmist is not surrendering to his emotions. He's not caving in to the feelings of despair. He's fighting back. He's speaking to himself words of hope. And that's what you need to do with your depression. I mean, seek medical help by all means if you need to. But along with that, you fight back these dark and depressing thoughts by the truth of God's word and speak words of hope to yourself. 
We talk about preaching the gospel to others. There are times in your life you need to preach the gospel to yourselves. My soul, my soul, hope in God for Jesus will come through. I serve a God who never leaves or forsakes me. He does not falter or fail. He does not change like shifting shadows. My God is a merciful God. My God is a faithful God. The gospel gives me eternal hope that can never be taken away. My Redeemer lives. Preach that to yourself. For sorrow may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And if the circumstances of your life bring you down on your knees, that's a good place to be in. For you are ready to encounter the God who raises the dead. Look at the last part of verse 9. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Why would God allow this trauma in Paul's life? To go through such extreme hardships to the point he did not want to live anymore? He was so exhausted and drained that he collapsed under that great pressure. I mean, why would God allow something like that in the life of his chosen servant? It's so that Paul will despair, find no hope, no exit route, exhaust all his options and come to the conclusion that God is all I have and he's more than enough. God allowed such intense trials to teach lessons on utter dependence. And dependence is not easy for someone with a dominant personality. As Paul suffered such trauma, he began to learn about the power of Jesus and what it means to lean on his everlasting arms. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 8, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. The jars of clay that Paul is referring to here were cheap earthen vessels that were unattractive on the outside. For that very reason, people put jewels and precious items in those jars to not draw any attention to them. See, in ancient days, they did not have a safe or locker like we do today. So treasures were concealed in the most unlikely places like clay jars. So if someone was looking to steal the treasure, that would be the last place they would look for. Paul says, the treasure of the gospel is stored in us who are fragile, unappealing earthen jars. See, the content of the gospel is precious because it is the power of God. 
But the carriers of the gospel are weak, broken, fragile instruments. And one, one of God's greatest purposes in our trials is to help us to recognize this truth. Paul points to us in our passage that the trials came so they will not depend on themselves, but on God. In our insufficiency, we realize that God's grace is all-sufficient. Dependence. It means a lot to God. But in North America, we have little understanding of what it means to depend on God. We don't know what it means to lean on His everlasting arms. And that's because we have too many crutches to lean on. Our default mode is to rely on ourselves. An average North American is an educated, fairly competent individual and can accomplish a lot with his or own, her own abilities and strengths. And that's why God is not our first option in times of trouble. He's our last option. When we have tried everything else, when we have knocked on all other doors, when all of our options have been exhausted, then we turn to God. And I tell you, God doesn't like a last place in our life. He demands to be number one. The Bible does not tell us to battle life's problems through our own self-determination and grit. But we are told the very reason there are problems in the first place is so we can be stripped of our self-sufficiency and we will learn to cast ourselves in His everlasting arms. And when you come to that point in your life, when you say from your heart, Lord, I don't have any strength. I don't have any power. I cannot carry on anymore. You are giving him permission to act. And when you give him permission to act, then you will see what his power can accomplish through you. There's a phrase in our passage that stands out distinctly. God who raises the dead. That is true both literally and in a metaphoric sense. Our God is the God of resurrection. One day, he will raise all the dead people of this world. Not one of them will be left out. But this is also true in a metaphoric sense. A Christian woman writing an article on depression says this from her personal experience. Depression is a strange illness. Most terminally ill people have a spirit that longs to live, even though the body is dying. As a depressed person, I felt that my spirit had already died. My body just refused to follow it to the grave. Is there any hope for such a person whose spirit has died on the inside? I want you to look at Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, 
and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's the God we serve. He redeems our life from the pit. In that moment of brokenness, when you have no desire or motivation to live, when everything inside of you feels so dead on the inside, and you just don't want to carry on with life anymore, when you are caught in that pit of despair and darkness, God does not look at you from a safe distance in heaven. But the God who raises the dead reaches into that pit of despair and darkness and he pulls you out. And in that moment, you experience the God of redemption. The moment when Jesus encounters you, he infuses you with life abundant and full. He crowns you with love and compassion. He puts new desires in your heart and he gives you a new purpose to live. There is hope for us today because you and I have to never go through any situation in life that is outside of God's redemptive power. Yeah. Look at verse 10. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. After all that Paul went through, he now testifies of God's deliverance. God made a way where there seemed to be no way. And out of that hopeless situation, God rescued Paul. The verse tells us that God's deliverance is past, present, and future. It covers our entire life. Our hope rests on that. His ability to deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. Does God always deliver? That's a pertinent question, isn't it? I believe God always delivers us but it's not always the way we want. I shared with you last week about the Islamic terrorist in France who had an imminent plan to kill Christians in Paris. But he accidentally shot himself on his leg and a great disaster was averted because God intervened in that situation. Does that happen all the time? Does God always miraculously deliver his people from such situations? No. No. One of the most gruesome videos that the Islamic State put together was the execution of 21 Egyptian Christians by the beach in Libya. Remember that picture? The Christians in orange jumpsuits kneeling by the sea. The men from the Islamic State clad in black dress with their faces covered, taking a sword 
and just slitting the throat of 21 Christians on video camera. Well, there are no words to express that kind of brutality. All that was reported in the media, but our media stopped there. Do you know what happened after that? Undaunted by the slaughter of 21 Christians, the director of the Bible Society of Egypt saw a golden gospel opportunity. Within 36 hours of this tragic incident, a gospel tract named Two Rows by the Sea went to print. It was a tract that contrasted the two rows of men, the one in their orange jumpsuits who were slain, with their murderers in black dress standing in another row. The tract had this Bible verse on it, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then the tract had this poem. Let me read it for you. Two rows of men walked the shore of the sea on a day when the world's tears would run free. One, a row of assassins who thought they did right. The other of innocence, true sons of the light. One holding knives in hands held high, the other with hands empty, defenseless and tied. One row of slits to conceal glaring dead eyes, the other with living eyes raised to the skies. One row stood steady, pall bearers of death, the other knelt ready, welcoming heaven's breath. One row spewed wretched, contemptible threats, the other spread God-given peace and rest. A question, who fears the other? The row in orange watching paradise open or the row in black with minds evil and broken? 1.65 million copies of this gospel tract were distributed all through Egypt and around the world and people saw for the first time what it means to have Christian hope. That is called God's redemptive power. A situation that appears so gross and so evil is turned around completely upside down as God in one masterstroke works something for good to advance his kingdom. Church, hear this. The God who turned the crucifixion and gruesome death of Jesus into a glorious resurrection has not changed his methods. So your heartbreaks and sorrows are never wasted. He takes the darkest moments of your life and he does what he alone can do in his power, turns it around and accomplishes something far more glorious than any of us can conceive. On him, on him, we have set our hope. If that is true of you, you will never be disappointed. We have a great hope because we have a great Savior. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. 
Paul was requesting the Corinthian church to pray for him. In fact, he attributes his deliverance to the prayers of God's people. When you ask for prayers, you are admitting you cannot do it in your strength. When you ask for prayers, you are admitting that you cannot do it alone. You need the help of other Christians. I have a personal prayer team, a small group of faithful people who pray for me during the week. Why do I need that? Because the task of preaching is too intimidating. The task of the responsibility of pastoring the flock and taking the gospel to people who don't know Jesus is impossible in my own strength. And I need the support of others around me to encourage me and strengthen me. And even times when I feel my faith is weak and I feel weary, their faith in God carries me through. One of the reasons we face hopelessness is because we are not connected to a godly community. A godly community that can breathe life into you. We practice an independent silo spirituality. Hear me, the community of faith plays a vital role in building your faith and walking with you in your troubles. Get into community because the community of God's people is a gift God has given to us for the troubled times. Let me close with this story. Some of the greatest songs of our faith were written when the songwriters went through the darkest moments in their life. And that's because the greatest revelation of God comes in the most difficult of times. Such a song became popular in the 1990s, written by a man named Lawrence Tuning, who served as a pastor and worship leader. The year 1992 became a year of sorrows for Lawrence and his family as they faced one major blow after another, starting with the death of Lawrence's dad. Lawrence's wife had her third consecutive miscarriage. He held this 14-week fetus in his hands, and he realized it was a boy. And with tears in his eyes, he said to God, I don't understand why this happened, but I still love you. Things were hard in his ministry. And Lawrence was on the verge of a breakdown. As the experience of the dark night of the soul prolonged for months, Lawrence used to play his piano for hours seeking comfort. And that time a song birthed in his heart which sustained him. In the darkest time of his life, he composed the song, the anchor holds. Later, Ray Bowles, an award-winning Christian artist, worked on the song, and it became popular. The song begins with these words. I have journeyed through the long, dark night out on the open sea, by faith alone, sight unknown, and yet his eyes were watching me. And the chorus of the song says, the anchor holds though the ship is battered. The anchor holds, though the sails are torn. I have fallen on my knees, 
as I face the raging seas, the anchor holds in spite of the storm. The storms of life will come. Christians are not exempted from it. The storms may even batter our ship and tear our sails. The wind and the waves may rage against us. But in the midst of all of that is this promise. The anchor holds in the midst of the storm. For it's firm and secure, immovable and unshakable. It's rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. And millions of Christians around the world can testify to this truth. The anchor holds. So if you are going through a testing time today, and you feel like you're sinking, let hope rise in your heart. The anchor holds in the midst of your storm. As we come to an end, I want to give an opportunity for us to pause and reflect on what we've heard and listen to the still small voice of God, the voice of His Spirit. Some of you, you feel like what Paul was feeling in our passage. You're despairing of life itself. And you're wondering, am I going to make it? I want you to know today, you will make it if you hope in God. He will carry you through. That's his promise. So in the quietness of this moment, I want you to reach out to God and express your heart to him. And after that, I'll close us in prayer. I want your eyes to be closed this moment. I know that there are some of you right now, you need a touch from God. That's the only way you're going to make it. You feel that burden in your heart. I want you to stand right now so I can pray for you. Every eye closed, every head bowed. Just stand up if you need prayer, if you need a touch from God. We're going to believe that God is going to do a miracle right now. Just stand up. The rest of you pray along with me. Father, we come to you today and we believe in the truth of your word. And what it says about your character and your nature. Thank you God for you are the God who raises the dead. Nothing is impossible for you. And we pray for everyone who's standing right now. Lord Jesus, reach out to them wherever they are. By your nail-pierced hands, Lord Jesus, we pray that you will touch them. May your Holy Spirit reach out to them right now. That even in that moment of desperation and heartbreak and pain, we pray that you will place a hope in their heart. That you will take that very circumstances that they're wrestling with. And that you will turn it around for good and accomplish it 
accomplish something great and glorious that you alone can do. Father, comfort them and strengthen them in this time. Walk with them. May they feel the reality of your presence, Jesus. May they feel your arms of love around them, Lord. Father, sustain them. Carry them through. And we pray that these people will be agents of hope. Through their times as they have experienced God in the darkness of that moment. May they stand up with the assurance and share it with others around them. So fill them, Lord, with your strength. Infuse them with your power. Reach out to them and strengthen them in a way you alone can. We bless them today with your peace and joy. In the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 